Good evening and welcome to this special live recording of Reading Our Times, the podcast that introduces you to the books and the ideas that are shaping the world today. We are at the Unheard Cafe in London before a select audience to talk to an author about a book that deals with an idea that is almost never out of the headlines. Now, a few weeks ago, two even more eminent individuals were sitting on a stage not very far from here talking about a similar topic. One of them was the techno-utopian billionaire, Elon Musk, and the other was the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, for now, Rishi Sunak. (laughs) They were talking at the end of an inaugural summit on AI safety, hosted by the Prime Minister, in which representatives from around the world assembled at Bletchley Park to discuss the perils and promises of the new machine age. In their conversation, Musk was typically enthusiastic. AI will soon be smarter than the smartest human, he said. It will enable people who need them to make friends. And the line that captured most editors' attention, it will one day make paid work redundant. We are seeing the most disruptive force in history here, he said there will come a point where no job is needed. You can have a job if you want one for personal satisfaction, but AI will do everything. Will it? Do we want it to? How will technology affect how we work, how we engage socially, how we are governed? Is Elon Musk's promise simply more mindless techno-utopianism? Or are things really different this time? And is there anything that can guide us through all this? Have we been here before? Robert Skidelsky is Emeritus Professor of Political Economy at the University of Warwick. His three-volume biography of John Maynard Keynes received numerous prizes, including the Wolfson Prize for History and the Lionel Gelber Prize for International Relations and the Council on Foreign Relations Prize for International Relations. He was made a life peer in 1991 and a fellow of the British Academy in 1994 for both history and economics. And his new book that we are talking about tonight is entitled The Machine Age, An Idea, a History, a Warning. Robert, welcome to Reading Our Times. Thank you for asking me here. You begin A Machine Age by quoting a famous essay written by Keynes in 1930 called Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. So I want to begin with that and with the question of technology and work. What did Keynes say in his essay? What did he get right? What did he get wrong? Well, I'm not going to evade the question, as people tend to do very often, but I would like to start with something earlier you said, which was... Uh, about the meeting between our temporary Prime Minister and Elon Musk. It took place at Bletchley Park. And Bletchley Park is quite significant because it gives us an idea of the possibilities of technology. I mean, if you, on the one hand, it celebrates the birth of British computer science and its high priest, Alan Turing, that is what Bletchley Park is known for. But there's another point about Bletchley Park which is important, is it was the centre of British 
technological war against Germany. It was the British computer decrypted German secret messages. And that was an important factor in the winning of the war. So you have this double influence of, of technology. On the one hand, it points to this wonderful future. And of course, that was the theme of the current conference. British technology, the ability of technology to make the world a better place, that we should be at the forefront of it. All those themes were explored and developed. On the other hand, we have to also think of the other meaning of Bletchley Park, which is the weaponization of technology. So there's an ambiguity right so from the start. So there's an ambiguity right from the start uh, there. And when we talk about the weaponization of technology there, we, we have obviously contemporary parallels. And then, of course, the other aspect of the ambiguity is uh, the one which relates very much to the, your question, which is, what's the effect going to be on jobs? And um, the point Elon Musk raised when he called for a pause. So I'm ready to deal with Keynes <laughs> if, you, if you want, if you want yeah, you to... Yeah, Nick Robertson continue. wouldn't let him get, get away with that, would you? <laughs> um, so was Keynes as enthusiastic about the possibilities of technology on work, as, say, Elon Musk was. Was he predicting, I mean, he predicted a three-day working week, was it, in the essay? Well, he predicted three hours a day. He said he... The thing about the economic possibilities for our grandchildren, which is Keynes' essay of 1930, and I make this a theme all the way through my book, is it comes out of theology. It comes out of the book of Genesis. The whole story, the whole plot, comes out of the Garden of Eden, God's curse and the hope of salvation. And, in fact, Keynes is quite explicit about this, the theological route, when in that essay he says, he's writing in 1930, perhaps in a hundred years, three hours a day will be enough to satisfy the old Adam in us. So that is very, very clear. The other element in Keynes's essay, and here he certainly does think of technology as liberating, Technology will lift the curse, the curse God placed on humanity. You shall live by the sweat of your brow. That was the curse for disobeying God. And what's more, the fascinating thing is that economists translated the curse into the cost. Work is the cost of living. That is economics. Work is the cost of living. If you don't work, as Lenin said, echoing classical economics, if you don't work, you won't eat. Echoing St Paul, in fact, at one point. Echoing St Paul. Whether he knew he was echoing, he probably did. He was probably very well, well educated. So it's, it's interesting how that theological concept becomes an economic concept and therefore a secular concept. Therefore, anything that lightens the cost of living must be beneficial. And that was the spirit in which Keynes wrote his economic possibilities of our grandchildren. Technology would lighten the cost of living. It would ease God's burden on humanity. So in that sense, he, he welcomed it. And, and that was very, very clear. So in 100 years' time, we would only have to work about three hours a day in order to satisfy our reasonable, reasonable wants. Here, let's park reasonable for a moment, reasonable wants, and uh, we would regain paradise. 
I have to say, we've got onto theology a lot quicker than we normally do in reading our times. <laughs> no, no. And we will stay there. But I want to pick up that reasonable wants point because he also ignores this critical distinction between wants and needs in the essay, doesn't he? Tell us more about why that's an important distinction. Well, because technology hadn't yet reached the point at which it would mount a relentless attack, if you like, on human wants and constantly seek to enlarge them, to create more and more artificial ones. I mean, what he didn't foresee was that technology via advertising and very precise focusing, and of course through the social media, could make wants permanently scarce. He thought that humans reasonable, they, they wanted a certain amount to live well, maybe too, a little too much, but not the relentless pressure of wants, not the not making us consumer junkies. He never foresaw that, because he never saw that further development of technology. He also, after all, came out of a, a still Christian society and culture. His uh, grandfather was a Baptist preacher. I mean, it was a very religious, late Victorian religious So he didn't actually foresee this explosion of consumerism or the explosion of secularism. He wasn't a religious... Well, when I say, was he a religious person, it's it's ambiguous. But, I mean, he didn't foresee the explosion of secularism. And therefore, he didn't foresee the explosion of wants. So, from that point, there is simultaneously a liberating capacity and possibilities of technology, but Keynes was blind to the fact that in the same breath it can enslave us and give us perceived needs that then demand a great deal from us. Yes, I mean, his perspective, apart, I mean, he wasn't, his, wasn't a religious perspective, but it was the perspective of a sort of a Cambridge don, really. I mean, <laughs> the higher life, and once you were freed, and, and Cambridge Dons were freed from most of the sordid necessities of living, most of the costs of living, uh, freed by endowments and uh, uh, position and privilege to concentrate on the higher things, the higher value activities. Um, and so in a way he thought that could be, be democratised, that that higher life uh, could be made um, the property of everyone. And he was a little bit blind to the counter-pressures and to the actual impossibilities of doing this. As someone pointed out, the higher-value life did depend on having lots of servants. <laughs> now, the, the, the point is, of course, that you could then democratise this and say, look, we can all have the higher-value life because we'll have lots of robots. But once you do that, you're in, you know, your, your arguments becomes less and less plausible. Mm. I want to pursue this ambiguity, because I think this is really at the heart of the impact that technology has on human nature and human society. Keynes is blind to it in in that instance. But interestingly, you quote at one point in the book David Ricardo, who is an early 19th century economist, who is not so blind to it. He's writing at the time of the early Industrial Revolution, and he says the substitution of machinery for human labour was often very injurious to the interests and class of labourers. Now, there's no yeah. doubt, of course, that the Industrial Revolution did 
ultimately alleviate many, many lives and give us luxury and wealth. But of course, at the same time, it came at a great cost. And yeah. very early on, Ricardo is alert to that ambiguity, isn't he? Yeah, well, I, I think, I think the, the fear of machines really starts with the Industrial Revolution. And before that, people weren't really centrally concerned with machinery as a factor in human existence. But I think with the Industrial Revolution, that, that, that certainly started. And of course, it was then you had the economists like Ricardo, but Ricardo here is a rather exception in that chapter on machinery. It's a very interesting chapter because his first book, which was The Principles of Economics in a Political Economy, the first edition of it didn't have that chapter in it. But then you had the Luddites, and he was forced to think through, well, what was wrong with the Luddite? What was wrong with what the Luddites were doing, smashing the machines? This is the, the handling weavers. And they were supported by romantic poets and all the people who were really hostile to the Industrial Revolution, people like Byron and others. But the economists thought they were completely you know, that they, they, they didn't understand the laws of economics and that they deserved to be shot. I mean, I don't think they, they thought they, they ought to be treated the way they actually did, but they certainly didn't feel they had any good arguments on their side. And here Ricardo found one, having thought through it, he found an argument, which is to say that for the handloom weavers, it was a disaster, the introduction of power looms. They would be wiped out. And they were. They were wiped out. Over 20 or 30 years, from, from 450,000, they went to zero. And on the way, on the way, their wages slowly fell. And so he said, from their point of view, they were completely right. But then he said, if you look a bit further ahead, the society as a whole probably benefited mm. from that. Just as the introduction of agricultural machinery wiped out horses. There were far fewer horses after the Industrial Revolution than there were before, because horses were made, being made redundant. It was a rather interesting, rather interesting example. And he said that could happen to human beings, but it's unlikely to because of the fact that wants would continually expand, yeah. and that would create more and more new jobs. So there was always this thing, the immediate effect on particular groups of workers was destructive, but the long-run effect on society as a whole would be beneficial, and that's how the argument's gone ever since. So at least Ricardo was alert to that short-term impact. Would I be right to say that, as a rule, economists side with the, the techno-utopians and see only positive impact of technological innovation? Yeah, because they don't understand the costs of the transition. I mean, the economics is an equilibrium system. Transition is a phrase that sort of comes, but it's almost not regarded as important. Oh yes, there'll be some costs in the transition, they will say. The fact that transition might last 50 years, destroy a couple of generations, seems to be almost something economists don't have the emotional intelligence to grasp. I say this as of having someone having come to economics fairly late in life, but having studied it quite carefully. So they don't seem to understand the important weight in the term transition. And this is reflected in arguments which we hear the whole time. 
the workforce has to adapt to the pace of technology. We have to retrain our workforce. We have to upskill our workforce. We have to do all these things in order to make them fit. The word is race with the machines to the glorious future. Now, you know, you, you, you start thinking like a Luddite when you hear too many of those arguments. So the argument there is that humans effectively have to fit in yeah. to, to machinery, to, yeah. the, to, to yeah. the progress that has been designed for them. There's another important question that you raise about Keynes's essay and is a wider issue when we think about the introduction of machines and technology, which is the question of distribution. You make the point that Keynes' essay doesn't really take account of that issue. Is it the case that the introduction of technology, particularly into the market, into the workplace, makes a society less equal? I think the answer is yes. I think, although conditions, I mean, pre-industrial England and Europe were not immensely salubrious by our standards, there was more equality because many more people owned bits of land which was their property and they could make a living from. And, I mean, even if you take um, a lot of the um, handloom weavers, I mean, they worked from their homes. They were given, given work to do. But, but basically the core of their living was their property. And one of the things Marx realised was what the Industrial Revolution did was to deprive um, most people of all their property except their labour power. That was the only property they had left. All the other property was gone, either through enclosures or the various forms of expropriation. So in that sense, there was an inherent inequality built. On the one side, there were people who really started to own more and more of the instruments of production. And on the other hand, people had nothing to sell except their labour power. Now, in that inequality arises huge possibilities for increasing the inequality of distribution. And that, I think, was realised as the 19th century wore on. Society became less equal. It became wealthier on average, but most of the wealth was increasingly concentrated in a fairly small class. And that is why socialism really started, and that's why socialism emphasised the problem of distribution. Mm. It wasn't important for Keynes's economics as a whole to emphasise distribution. In fact, it was rather clever of him not to, because if he emphasised distribution too much, people might be a bit suspicious of Keynes in economics. Mm. But for this particular purpose, it was very important that he, he did so. And he said, yes, absolutely. If the fruits of technology go to a small class, then the society as a whole won't benefit. Yeah. That was the argument we had on, the, I think, the very first series of Reading Our Times, Thomas Piketty, in his famous books about capital in the 21st century. And he started his professional life studying the inequality in France and in England in the beginning of the 19th century, which is already significant. And by the end of the 19th century, when we've gone through this transition, it's even more unequal. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the responses to that today you sometimes hear is, OK, we recognise this as a danger, so we're going to introduce universal basic income. Now, in, in a previous series, I interviewed Paul Johnson from the Institute for Fiscal Studies, who was very rude 
about universal basic income. What's your view on something like universal basic income as a way of addressing the distribution problems that might lie ahead? Well, okay, it addresses the distribution problem, but then it does, but it doesn't resolve the problem of what people are to do. <laughs> I mean, you know, you're just paying them to do nothing. Yeah, of course, that's the sort of instinctive reaction which a lot of people have. And I have an instinctive reaction in that direction because I think it's not that I think people naturally want to sort of do nothing for something. It's that I think they want to be useful. I think they want to be useful to society. They want to connect with, with, their, with their fellow citizens, their fellow fellows. And they also want to be creative in some way, actually to be, have some connection with making things. If you just say, OK, look, broadly speaking, uh, we don't need your labour any longer because robots can do everything. Now think about something else. Well, we'll give you, we'll give you enough income. You just um, do what you want with it. And there's no moral impulse to do anything at all. Of course, there will be. I mean, some people will always. But it's interesting that Elon Musk has got something wrong in what you quote. There will come a point where no job is needed. You can have a job if you want one. But that's the wrong use of the word job. I mean, job is not as a question of choice, jobs. I mean, people in pre-industrial society didn't have jobs. They had work, but not jobs. So as soon as you eliminate the need for work, you are actually eliminating jobs. There are no longer jobs you choose. There may be things you choose to do, sure. But it's an interesting misunderstanding um, because I think it, it affects the way we, we think of universal basic income simply as um, something that could be a substitute for work. And I don't think it is. Having said that, of course, it's a lot better if you, if you have a sensible, sensible way in which uh, machines gradually improve living conditions. It's one way in which you can make sure that the fruits of the machines are distributed to the whole population rather than accruing to a small minority. You can do that. And, and, and universal basic income can do that. But it doesn't solve the problem of what you are to do with your life. What your life is for, what your relations with your fellows should be, what sort of society is morally good, doesn't address any of those problems. We've talked about the impact of technology on work in particular, and there's another major theme in the book, which is the impact of technology on society, and in particular, freedom. This also has an, an ancient history, which is a, a complex one. On, on the one hand, you write about a, an underlying Christian theme here, which is that knowledge is not the same as, and it cannot compel virtue, and that history is not ours to, to close and, and to conclude. And there's another theme which is particularly prominent from the 17th century onwards, which is a growing sense that our knowledge can create a better world and perhaps even better humans, and that that progress can then be secularised and turned into an earthly utopia. Now, that's ideology that's particularly associated with the Enlightenment, isn't it? The idea that somehow or other, the Christian idea that we need to... There was an inherent imperfection and we needed to wait for heaven is to deny the possibility of progress here on Earth. How far is that 
theme central to the way that we have used technology. The idea that technology can deliver us utopia if we simply think better, if we know more. Well, I think that's absolutely central. And it leads to the, the, the divide between, again, the techno-optimist and the pessimist. If you look at um, Adam's sin, what was Adam's sin? It was a sin of the mind. It wasn't a sin of the body. Adam didn't lust after the pleasures of the flesh and God punished him for all that. His sin was to want to know what God knew. It was the sin of Icarus, if you transfer it to a non-Christian setting, who flew too close to the sun. And it was the sin, really, inherited by science. So there was always, um, in this striving uh, of science, the idea of replacing God, but replacing God in a way that benefited humanity in this life making a perfect society. I think we, we, we find it hard to associate that with machinery. And I found, I found it a struggle in my book because I was using technology in a number of different ways. I mean, there's social technology, and you don't think of machines as, social, as bits of social technology. There was social science, which is a um, theory of how to understand society and how to improve it. That's been the goal of social science. Social technology. All these things were part of this quest to take the imperfect condition of humans as it had been bequeathed and make it into something better. In this life, it was the dream of perfection. And I think that's driven a great deal of our technology. What we've created, as I saw it, was a new priesthood of scientists, technologists as their lesser priests, and the machines to carry out their orders. I mean, something like that, replacing the old religious hierarchy by which people had lived, but with the danger that they thought, as you've just said, that sin was a lack of knowledge. And therefore, if you could actually improve education. I have this quote. Would you allow me to um, mm. read it? It's a very short one, and I call it the Baranovsky Project, or the Bazarov. I should say it's the Bazarov Project. And it comes from uh, Turgenev's Fathers and, and Sons. We know approximately what physical diseases come from. Moral diseases come from bad education, from all the nonsense people's heads are stuffed with from childhood onwards, from the defective state of society. In short, reform society and there will be no diseases. That was the dream. And um, that was the utopia, but of course it produced dystopia, as the actual attempts to do it led to such appalling crimes that people realized, so you know, that they couldn't do this kind of thing, and that the quest for earthly utopia encountered an insuperable obstacle. That's when, of course, people started thinking about original sin a bit more carefully. So again, we have this ambiguity here. On, on the one hand, we have this equivalence, this perceived equivalence of, of knowledge and morality. And the point you make about Adam and sin and science is, is, is extremely pertinent. 
written a bit about this myself. That one of the models of the scientific revolution in the 17th century was the idea that Adam had encyclopedic knowledge and perfect intelligence before the fall. And what we needed to do was to reverse the fall and acquire knowledge and acquire intelligence and therefore acquire wisdom. And so there was a linking of this epistemic task, this task of knowing better with being better, right from the earlier stage. But, as you rightly say, the turn sour, actually quite quickly, you rightly say that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is a kind of dystopian novel before they were ever popular, really. Yeah, Tell yeah. us the, the impact of that, because I think it's really, really telling. Uh, just one question. Do you think Adam had encyclopedic knowledge and wisdom before he ate the apple? I, I don't think so. I mean, otherwise, otherwise why, why was he tempted by the tree of knowledge? Well, 17th century preachers did. I, I, I wouldn't personally put my vote in that particular box, but that was one of their if there are any, If there are any theologians here who could d discourse on that question, I'd be very interested. Prepare but anyway, um, your, your other question was uh, about... Frankenstein. Yes, Frankenstein, this is, with, this yeah. is technology being immoral. Yeah, well, it's the beginning of the rogue. It's, it's the fear of the rogue, uh, the rogue machine. So you have Frankenstein. He's obviously, you know, a god. I mean, Frankenstein believes that um, he can create a perfect, perfect creature and, and therefore eliminate the imperfection of the human condition. Just think of it as a, sim as a symbolic story about the world. And what he does is he creates a monster. And the monster is, of course, you can call it Soviet communism, you can call it uh, Nazi Germany. These are the monsters that come out of the quest for perfection in one way or another. Um, and she sees that. What I find inc incredible, I mean, there's so many interesting stories, because she was also, well, first of all, her youth makes it an incredible achievement. Secondly, she was married to Shelley, person <laughs> who was writing a, a poem called Prometheus Unbound, which was exactly the opposite, that, you know, uh, man would be liberated, humans would be liberated from another mythological curse which God had placed on Prometheus. And, and so the, the interactions of these two people, what, what did they talk about? I mean, did, 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 did husband Shelley say to wife Shelley, I've got it all wrong, actually. Look, we've got a glorious future. Did she say, look, you've got it all wrong. I mean, <laughs> your, your, your project leads to total disaster. Uh, I mean, I, I'd be really fascinated to, to, to be eavesdropping on that. But, um, of course, that's absolutely... Right, it was a blueprint for all the dystopian novels that then poured out. And the important thing was, it was an Enlightenment story. It couldn't have been written a hundred years earlier. It had to have been written at that time, and it had to have been written after the French Revolution had happened. But I think the fascinating thing about it is that it's still written in, in 1818, so it reflects on what happened in the French Revolution and what's happening in the Industrial Revolution. But it's in incredibly early because the great age of the utopian novel is actually after Frankenstein. You mentioned uh, another novel by Edward Bellamy, um, Looking Backward, which nobody reads today because it's awful, but it was hugely popular at the time. Immensely, I think it was the second most popular novel in English in the 19th century, and it's one in which the character falls asleep, awakes in <coughs> America, in the year 2000, which has become a socialist paradise, 
Not a brilliant forecast, that one. <laughs> and then sees the extraordinary impact that technology has had on liberating the human condition. So right into the end of the 19th century, and even slightly after that, the utopian tradition is alive and kicking, and then it sinks, doesn't it? Then, then dystopia really takes over. Well, I think that's... I think that you've got to remember, first of all, it's American, and America was the land of opportunity. And, you know, I mean, it was a sort of tremendous boom place. People went to America to make their fortune. So there was a very optimistic spirit. And secondly, remember its date, it was 1880 or something like 1887, that. 1887, yeah. I mean, by that time, the worst of the Industrial Revolution was over, so to speak. The horrors of the Industrial Revolution were really in the first half of the 19th century. And in that period, there were no utopian novels. But on the other hand, by, by the second half of the 19th century, things were getting better. The worst of the suffering was over. There was this uh, huge expansion of wealth. And, of course, there was the migration to the United States. So the conditions of Europe were radically improving, and people at that point, and the person who reflected this most strongly at the end of the 19th century in this country was H.G. Wells. And all his first 20 or 30 novels were utopian. They were all about the growth of science, how science was going to improve the human condition immeasurably, how we were all looking forward to utopia. In fact, he wrote a book called the Modern Ut A Modern Utopia. But even then, while Bellamy was uh, writing his stuff, you also had William Morris and various others who were saying, hey, you've got it all wrong here. Um, this isn't the way to utopia at all. So there was that debate. And then after the First World War, of course, the dystopian tradition really takes over. And even H.G. Wells wrote, Mind at the End of Its Tether, I think, in 1945, said it's all over. Mm. So, again, it's fascinating, this ambiguity that runs through the impact of technology on society, and you have the dystopian and utopian traditions kind of vying with one another. It's without a doubt that, for very obvious reasons, the dystopian tradition wins out in the first half of the 20th century as people see the impact that technology can have on societies. Now, we're having this conversation in London a couple of days after Paul Lynch has won the Booker Prize with Prophet Song, which very highly praised as a, people have called it a modern dystopian novel. It's not particularly technology-based, but it depicts a picture of Ireland that has slid into totalitarian rule. We also, of course, are having, well, Rishi Sunak is having conversations with Elon Musk, who is prophesying you know, we will not have jobs again, so on and so forth. So it seems to me we're back into this curious, ambiguous space where we have some very prominent people saying, this is going to solve it for us. Things are different this time. And you have other people, interestingly, the novelists, saying, no, 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 no. There is something very much darker and more worrying about the human condition. Where do you think we are? Are we back into this, this ambiguous space again? I don't think it's too ambiguous at the moment. I think the prospect is just dark. And what's happened, I think, which is um, pretty striking, is the way the scientists and the writers have come together in their darkness. I mean, at one point, there was the, the two-cultural divide. C.P. Snow, in the, in the 1960s, said, well, the problem with writers is they don't understand science. And if they only knew a bit of science, they wouldn't take such a gloomy view of the future. 
But of course, scientists do take an incredibly gloomy view of the future. Not all scientists, but I mean, the organizations of science, especially at, uh, uh, physicists, astronomers, I mean, they, they have doom forecasts. And they believe that to, again, use biblical language, we're threatened by four horsemen of the apocalypse. I mean, one is nuclear proliferation, the other is climate change, the third is uh, artificially made pandemics, and the fourth is um, network dependence, machines just stopping working. All of these are forecast in fiction, in dystopian fiction, but they're now quasi-official doctrine of very, very reputable scientific communities. So there's been a coming together. And what remains of the utopianism is, first of all, a lot of hype by people who want to promote. Secondly, um, a lot of uh, demand for more technology for purposes of weaponization, to keep, basically, to keep ahead of the Chinese, in our case. And that's um, extremely disturbing. I wouldn't call that utopian. And then there's a third utopian strand, you could call it. I, I spent some time doing that, and I'm not sure I did it perfectly well, which is a feminist utopia. I mean, I think that is separate. There's a masculine dystopia, and there's a feminist utopia. I didn't work it out fully. I didn't have enough space to give it enough thought, but I feel it's certainly there. But um, otherwise... Elon Musk is a dystopian. He's not a utopian. He's a dystopian. But he's a peculiar kind of dystopian. That's to say, he thinks the human species are doomed. But that you could possibly save a bit of mind. You could save the mind of the human species. The only thing that really gives it glory, makes it unique, and propel it into space. These pellets of mind, um, uh, and they'd colonize the moon, they'd colonize uh, all, all the planets, and, and therefore you'd get a billion years or so between the Big Bang and the Big you know, End, in which human intelligence could flower in an un unimaginable way. Now, you could say that's utopian, utopianism gone mad, but it's highly dystopian about the future of anything on this, on this planet. Yes, it's not my vision of heaven. It's not your... <laughs> so, in a way, it is the afterlife, isn't it? Which is a disembodied afterlife, which it's is not a, a very Christian a, it... view of heaven, but it's one that's popularised. Yes, but, but it reflects the Christian view that the mind and the body are separate. Well, I think it reflects a, a popularised okay. Christian view of that. Okay. I don't think that's, that's theologically okay. authentic at all. But it, it, well. it, it, reflects a, it reflects a view that the mind can exist independent of, the soul can exist independent of the body. Well, I, I, I've just read a book um, by someone called, is it um, William Sheed, called um, Theology and Sanity, um, which is a defence of uh, Roman Catholicism, a very strong defence, in which the separation of mind and body is the central doctrine. We're getting onto uh, a whole different reading our there times we here, are. aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we Again, are. Again, contributions okay. from the floor let's will be get, welcome. <laughs> let's get back to your, 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 um, your, your narrative. Well, I want to put one sort of small devil's advocate position to you, then, then draw the strands of our conversation together. The devil's advocate position would be this. A few years ago, I did a debate with Stephen Pinker, about his book, Enlightenment Now, where if Mr Pinker was sitting on the sofa with us today, he would say, oh, you'll get 
way out of perspective. Look at the figures. Things are getting better. It's just because of you know, the, the availability heuristic that we pay more attention to the current headline in the Daily Mail than we do in the Office for National Statistics. Things are getting better, he would say. It's not going down. Well, how do you um, handle pessimism and optimism? People who profess to think are expected to be optimists. They're expected to give a message of hope of some kind. No one wants to be told that the end is nigh. Although uh, that's not quite true. Some people do expect the end to be nigh. My book ends with what I'd say is an almost happy ending. Not a completely happy ending, an almost happy ending. That's to say, again, I go back to a theological idea, which never really occurred to me before I started writing the book, which is that we will have a plague of locusts and disasters, and that these are things that jolt, they destroy, but they also jolt us into some sort of progress. The person who alerted me, again, to the secular uh, development of a theological idea was someone called Albert Hirschman. And Albert Hirschman was, a, was a, a development economist, an American development economist, worked a lot in Latin America, and he developed a fascinating idea of what he called an optimal crisis. That is a crisis that actually jolts us forward, but isn't so intense, isn't so severe as to wipe us out. <laughs> Well, we can't arrange optimal crises of those kinds, of course, and we shouldn't try. No. Uh, we shouldn't try. We should not will evil in order to achieve good. But nevertheless, we do understand their historical importance, and people have called it the dialectic. But the idea that progress isn't linear, that you do have you know, um, these big relapses, and these relapses are one of the things that then moves you, like an electric current, moves you forward again. I give you this example. It's highly difficult. It's a highly troubling example. And the example is, would we have had either the Keynesian Revolution or the European Union had it not been for the Second World War? And the Second World War was an event of great evil, it was undoubtedly a very evil thing. And, of course, the Holocaust that went with it was amplified that evil. And yet out of it came a world which for 30 or 40 years was able to avoid depressions and, and also which ended conflict in Europe. Would we have had those benefits without original sin, I'll put it that way, or without the evil, I find that very difficult to answer. I mean, some people would say a gentler method. We didn't, we didn't have to go through that. We would have had the European Union anyway. There were lots of thinkers advocating it before then. And Keynes was advocating his revolution before then. We needn't have had a war, a great big war, millions dead, to have realised these aims. And yet I say, really? Mm. Well, I think that's a, that's a very good point, and I mean, it is beyond doubt that the development of the welfare state in Western European countries has been tied to warfare, both in the First and the Second World War, so that's another example. I want to draw our conversation towards a conclusion now. I want to do so by returning to the religion and the theology that has played such a welcome part in our conversation, and I want to do so by quoting something that you wrote in the introduction of the book, which really leapt out at me. It leapt out at me 
partly because I've written on the history of science and religion, but partly because I wasn't expecting you to say this. It's a long quote, but it's worth reading. So what should we advise our grandchildren? There are basically two alternatives. We can either urge them to seek technical solutions for the variety of life-threatening risks which present technology will bequeath them, or we can urge them to reduce their dependence on machines. In writing this book, I have come to believe that the first endeavour, while it may salvage fragments of human life, will destroy everything that gives value to it. The second alternative is the only one that makes human sense, but it requires the recovery of a framework of thought in which religion and science both play their part in directing human life. Einstein put the case with exemplary lucidity, science without religion is lame, religion without science is blind. Now I'm tempted just to say amen and leave it at that, but I want to ask you, what role do you think each of those protagonists should play? Well, it's a very important question. There are lots of things that are mysterious about our condition and always have been. That's why we have mythologies, that's why we have religions. They attempt to explain our condition and the condition of the world and the life, life of the world, which we can't grasp easily or readily. And at one time, I think, we over-relied, if you like, on the mythologies. And in, in Max Weber's phrase, the world was enchanted, it was full of gods. And then gradually we reduced the number of gods and we finally ended up with one God. And that God we ended up with sort of set the world going in the way that religious people could accept, but at the same time left a huge amount of scope for science to explain how things worked. In a sense, you got to a condition in which God sort of was the clockmaker, but science explained how the clock worked. And I think that has to be the terms of their collaboration. There are things that science can't explain, but science can also explain why things work in the way they do. Now, the mistake is to abandon the scientific view completely and say, look, all science is fraudulent. I mean, there are people, let's say, who deny any, any value in vaccination against COVID, who deny any value in medical interventions of any kind, and they simply deny that science has any role to play. But there are other people, the scientists, who simply regard religion as mystification and believe that science, they will crack all the mysteries of the universe, give them a bit of time. They'll crack the way the mind works, they'll reduce it all to, to chemical synapses of one kind or another. They will solve the riddle of the universe. Give us time, it's bound to happen. Now I think both of them are wrong. I don't think that we will solve the riddle of the universe through science and I don't think we should ignore science when it obviously has benefits to give us. So I'm really in the end a middle way person. <laughs> <laughs> the book is called the Machine Age, an idea, a history, a warning. Robert Skidilski, thank you very much indeed for speaking to Reading Our Times. <laughs> and thank you very much indeed for listening to Reading Our Times, our first live Reading Our Times. So we do have 20 minutes, half an hour or so for questions and comments. We already have one hand up. 
So we're going to go over there to Katie first of all, please. Thank you so much for, for a fascinating conversation. Wonderful. Um, I just wanted to go back to the very beginning where we talked about three hours of work a day and particularly about the contrast between people who find that work very mind-numbing, back-breaking, limiting and other people who find work very liberating and exciting and fulfilling and we can recognise there would be difference in the kinds of jobs that people would be doing. But I wonder if science and religion have something in common there in terms of looking for more that three hours a day is not enough for somebody who's inherently curious and has a way of working that is satisfying and exciting to them. And so is that another thing that perhaps science and religion have in common? I wonder if you can talk maybe about the hierarchy of job satisfaction a bit, about what it means to you know, either, or both, believe in a God that always has more and believe in a world and you know, the opportunities of science that, that offer new opportunities for us to explore. Thank you. Yeah. There, uh, there were two or three other hands up, so to make sure everyone gets there, I'm going to take two or three questions at once. There's one there, and then there's another one there. Thank you. John Updike, in a novel, uh, Roger's version, wrote about a young person who wants to... He thinks he's got a computer program that can prove the existence of God. And he goes to a university for a grant. And the chap he goes to is a professor of theology who used to be a Methodist minister. And he asks him, what is the difference between being a Methodist minister and being a professor of theology? And he says, to quote the industrial analogy, I think you could say I move from distribution into quality control. <laughs> and for me, the important thing for, for what you're saying tonight is that we actually as humanity have to find ourselves the role that we are going to play in the sort of difference between artificial intelligence and robots and the tasks that they are doing and it could be that this idea of quality control in its very much could be one way of thinking about that thank you your name sir Simon Surtees. Thank you, Simon. And then there was one question over here, I think, George. Thank you very much. Thank you. My observation uh, goes back to your comments around the Shelleys and their dinnertime conversations. One thing that's apparent in the field of AI safety, the concerns around how we build successful and safe AI systems, is that there is a little bit of a gender divide in terms of the researchers who are employed in that area. A couple of years ago, Timitnik Gebru, famous researcher that worked for Google, was fired when she pointed out the real concerns with AI language systems and the systems that they were building, and it was very not good for Google's commercial interests, and she was fired. Recently, OpenAI board, uh, led by Helen, um, sorry, surname escapes me, tried to get rid of Sal Almeld because of safety fears, and now she's been fired. And one of the things that kind of distinguishes these valid concerns around AI safety in this field and the doomerism of Musk and Bostrom and others is that the researchers who've been fired, who happen to be women, are concerned with the here and now and the impact on yep. minorities particularly, yeah, whereas yeah. The, the researchers, the doomers, who are concerned with long-term threats of AI tend to be male and prominent voices and they don't get fired or they own the business. So I wondered if you could speak a bit more about that, whether there is this kind of gender divide in terms of how the utopia dystopia vision comes in right from Shelley onwards. And your name? Sid. 
Sid, thank well, you, Sid. Well, that's a difficult question. I mean, they're all difficult, but that's, that's also very intriguing. So we've got Katie on the parallel between science and religion and, and uh, the shared curiosity and also the issue about job satisfaction hierarchy. Simon talking about finding ourselves a role and whether that's quality control um, and Sid's point about the gender divide and the utopia dystopia. Well, yeah, I mean, I think job satisfaction is um, hugely important. I think there's no doubt that there's a hierarchy of work, and some jobs do give much, much more satisfaction than others. Again, you, you think of personal in incidents. I was talking to a waiter in New York. These are things that stick in your mind. It was at a good restaurant, and I said, do you enjoy your job? He said, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, really meet interesting people and sort of... And I said, well, would you be doing this if you had a choice? He said, of course not. And, uh, <coughs> most, most jobs are boring. David Graeber coined the phrase bullshit jobs. They don't lead anywhere. They're just ways of getting enough money to pay the rent and pay for food and, you know, keep, keep a family going. Of course, people long to get out of those jobs. Having said that, having said all that, you still have a feeling that what they don't want to do is to just sort of sit around and do nothing. They want to be in some sort of satisfying jobs. And, and the great fraudulent promise, I think, of a lot of um, technology is that technology will propel them into more satisfying jobs. It will enhance the quality of their work. And I think it will only enhance the quality of the work of a rather small minority of people. Of course, you can think of all ways in which people can, can be made more creative through the use of technology. Of course, that's all there. No, no problem about that. But for the majority of jobs, um, that's not going to be. So therefore, you have this problem. So, I mean, there's a lot more to be said than that. Because I'm half senile, I forgot part of the question. <laughs> um, um, the quality control, you see, I thought, it seems to me that it's part of the false prospectus that you have all these uh, big problems connected with artificial intelligence, but that in some way we will be able to exercise some quality control over them. I need to have that question repeated. I want to deal with it properly and not evade it. Simon's question Second about... Question, yes. Yeah. Sorry, what, what I had in mind was we've got the machines and they're doing the jobs for us. And, for example, the designer of the machine may have it turned up to point 10, but actually we only want it at point 8 because that's actually what suits us best of all. And we can go back and say this is how we want the machines uh -huh. to work for us in, in a way which actually benefits us and benefits the world. Because if you go up to point 10, for example, you might be creating more things in the world which, which actually are, are, are destructive. Who are we in this, in this well, particular case, you see? I mean, we... We are um, living with this. Yeah. I mean, we may um, be uh, agreed that we only want level 7 and not level 10. But there is, first of all, the other we who actually want level 10 because they can 
delude people into thinking that the level 10 is going to be much better for them than level 7. And they're in competition, and there's a lot of money that is gambling on level 10 rather than level 7. So who's going to keep the controls down to a level that's tolerable for humans? And that is the question I, I struggle with. Now, you could say that popular demand will keep it down. Who is, for example, in a position to stop the elimination of cash? Now, cash is going. In five years, there'll be no cash. Why? Is, is it a popular demand? No, it's because banks want to keep control over transactions, and, um, and not only that, but sellers of products want to know what the transactions are so they can sell their products target them more accurately. So cash is going. I would say that we shouldn't allow that to happen, we, because I think most people don't want that to happen. I think they want a world in which you can have both cash and electronic money. But that's not going to be the option. And so I always ask the question, who's going to control the quality? Mrs Thatcher would have said the market. Well, the, the market... Yes, she would have said the market, of course, she would have said the market. But, of course, the market is now a collection of very, very, very wealthy oligarchic, very wealthy platforms, plus very powerful state agencies. That is the market. So, there's the question. Now, the last point, yes, is, of course... It's about gender divide and utopia and dystopia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got into transhumanism quite late in writing the book. I mean, in fact, it was a real contribution of my editor. I'd, I'd submitted the manuscript, and he said, look, there's nothing really in your book about transhumanism, and yet this is a very, very important new, new development going on. I should say this was about a year ago, so I rapidly read up on transhumanism and about Bostrom and McCaskill and um, the Oxford philosophers and then the MIT people and the Cambridge people. And I got fascinated in them because they've given up, in a way, on the here and now. The here and now is no concern. They said, if you want to be an effective altruist and a proper utilitarian, you're not interested in the here and now. Many, 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 many more billions of people are still uh, have to have their future protected. I mean, this generation is a dot on the trajectory of the human mind. It's a sort of blip. Now, that seems to me to be profoundly inhumane. And it's also, though, quite theological. Because what it's saying, in one way, is we have to suffer now for the sake of eternal life. That is a secular formulation of a very profound religious doctrine. You think so? God, God brings suffering to us in order to give us the chance of eternal bliss. Now, in what way is Bostrom and Elon Musk saying anything different except in their language and that their failure to recognise what, what it is they're saying. Mm. Th that's my question, anyway. Can I just go back to Sid, actually, on this gender point, which I think is very profound, it's only just struck me. When people think about great dystopian novelists, they think Orwell, they think Huxley, they might think of Eugenie Zvetin with We, 
Um, but they don't think of Margaret Atwood, and surely she's the greatest dystopian novelist of our generation, not only with The Handmaid's Tale, but with the Oryx and Craze. Margaret trilogy. Atwood. Yeah. yeah, yeah, think, yeah, yeah. So what, did you have a kind of observation on that, on that gender divide? Because I think that's really significant. Um, what strikes me is that they're often very focused on immediate trends um, that are playing out. So Margaret Atwood is one, but the author of The Hunger Games is also very inspired by immediate trends in society that they could foresee extrapolated. But in the field of AI safety, which is the one I picked as my example of the gender divide in, because both the female researchers I cited uh, and the doomers have a, a negative window on what the, the downsides of AI technology will be, except one is focused on the immediate effects of what it's doing to the climate, to minorities, to uh, women particularly, uh, and the other is fixated on a future. And this comes back to a little bit to your point earlier about economists not thinking about the phase transition costs. Um, the Elon Musks and the Bostroms are not thinking about the phase transition costs between here and now, whereas uh, Demetri Gebru and uh, others have been thinking very profoundly about what it costs to have ChatGPT running in yeah. terms of the cost of the environment and what it costs to society to have these um, images and these uh, connections and these generations of texts that are based on incredibly biased sets of data. Mm. Mm. So it's a, a different kind of window, I think, that does seem to come out. And I don't want to say that specifically women think this, men think that, but mm. there certainly seems to be a different divide in terms of the, what they're flagging as... Yeah, I, th I thought there was a difference of temper and tone between women writers and men writers on the subject of uh, technology. Ursula Gunn is another mm. very important example. You see, I think out of the gloom of the men comes some rays of hope for women. I mean, this must be part of the cultural history of the 20th, 20th century and secondly, certainly the second half of the 20th century. And that is reflected in the literature. And... Um, as I, as I watch with growing despair the um, weaponization of technology and the return of geopolitics and the games mainly men rulers are playing with the future of the planet, I keep thinking of where are the adults in the room and I feel that perhaps women should be running th things and that they will be less insane than these men with their infantile games. But um, that's not a serious political position, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's a very good position on which to end because I don't think we can improve on that. And join me, finally, in thanking Robert for his contribution tonight. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Reading Our Times from the think tank Theos. It's produced by Phil Bodger. Our team includes Daniel Turner, Fiona Hanscom and Chinny McDonald. Special thanks to Nina Humphreys, who composed our theme tune and all the music. You can subscribe to Reading Our Times on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And you can also find us on our website, theosthinktank.co.uk. 